Fantastic. Hail to the chief, Barack Obama. If I was Barack Obama, I would feel fantastic when I heard that music, wouldn't you? He's probably been planning his whole career. In fact, he's probably been practicing. What would it be like when you walk out for the first time and you hear, hail to the chief? I would be just like, wow, what an accolade. He's got to the pinnacle of his career. He has arrived and he's got the music to prove it. When we were in Ghana, uh, the presidential elections in the United States were going on and it was really interesting to see the reaction of the Ghanaian people when Obama was elected as president. They were so excited that a black African-American had made it into power because of what it meant for them as black people that somebody had achieved. They had calendars printed. They had the whole... In fact, I brought one. cost me all of 50p. I brought an Obama calendar and I brought it home and I gave it to one of the social workers in my office who's American. And she was just like, wow, thank you. She was so excited about Barack Obama. Now, he had a pretty well-planned rise to power. Interestingly enough, he was born in 1961 in Hawaii. His mum was from Kansas and his dad from Kenya. He lived in Indonesia for quite a long time. And then he returned to Hawaii to live with his grandparents after his parents had divorced. An interesting fact that I'd got no idea, he did a gap year after he'd left school and he worked as a community organiser in a church-based group in Chicago, helping the poor. Then he went for the more normal route. When he was 30, uh, in 1991, he studied law at Harvard and he was the first African-American president of the Harvard Review. Then he became a civil rights lawyer. Then in 1996, he became a governor of Illinois State. In 2004, he made a keynote speech at the Democratic National Congress, and he was noted as being a rising star. And boy, how quickly did he rise. In 2004, he was then elected to the U.S. Senate. Three years later, in 07, he decided to run for president. In 2008, he was elected the Democratic Party candidate. And lo and behold, there he was in October 2008, he was elected to be president of the United States of America. That was a pretty quick rise to the top. He's written a few books, and I want to just give you a quote from one, and this is it. If you are walking down the right path, and you are willing to keep walking, eventually you will make progress. That's an interesting thing, isn't it, about being persistent. So Barack Obama, hail to the chief, fantastic. Now I want to read from the message, Philippians 2. So if you haven't got the message Bible, don't worry about following me, just listen. If you've got anything at all out of following Jesus Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour. Agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. No, not at all. When the time came... He set aside the privileges of deity, 
and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honoured him far beyond anyone or anything. So that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all, to the glorious honour of God the Father. I find these scriptures some of the most personally challenging scriptures in the whole of the Bible because it really cuts to the chase, doesn't it? And it exposes who we are and what's expected of us. Barack Obama had a terrific, well-planned, structured ascent to become the President of the United States. Jesus, in contrast, had a very clear, very well-structured, very well-planned descent. And we're going to look at that this morning. Because the world's view of greatness maybe could be summed up by Obama, but in God's eyes, greatness is completely flipped on its head. And as we're moving through Lent and we're looking at this revolutionary, countercultural Jesus, we're going to start with the incarnation because that is just mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And the serious bit about it is in verse 5 of Philippians, it says, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's the general principle. Our attitude should be the same as Christ. Wow. What does that actually mean? What does that impact And what does that say to each one of us? And we're going to look at that in a bit more detail. I find the clues are in verses 1 to 3. And again, part of the message. If you're a Christian at all, if God's made any difference in your life, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. But put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a hand to others. That's hard, isn't it? That is not something that you want to pin up on the wall and think, yippee, I'm going to remind myself of that every day. That's the basic underlying principle, that our attitude needs to be the same as Jesus. And that's the nub of the challenge. It's Jesus' model. He didn't plan to become great. He planned to become a servant, which is the absolute opposite of the norm. Normally, we strive to gain. He strived and chose to lose. Now, down... Is a word that I don't like very much, especially if you're a Baggies fan. Going down. What does going down mean? It means negative, down and out, downside, downfall, downhearted, down under. Down isn't good. You want to go up, especially if you're with the wolves, but we're not going to, but that's just my aside. Up is a prestige word. It's a word for winners. For heroes, up and coming, upwardly mobile, upper class. You ascend to power. You want to gain influence, pleasure and greatness. But this is the catch, isn't it? Philippians 2 is totally countercultural. If you want to be great, then you have to descend. And then when you've descended, God lifts you up again. It's a complete oxymoron. The more you lose, the more you gain. It's conventional wisdom flipped on its head. 
Now, descending isn't a particularly popular thing in Christian circles. I don't know many Christians who have in their houses, Lord, make me a servant, humble me, decrease me, I want to be nothing. We have those other texts on the wall, don't we, you know, about peace, about comfort, about you're my rock, you're my strength, you'll be with me, you're my provider. That's what we like to think about. We tend to soften or put aside the texts that perhaps aren't quite so comforting. But actually, let's look at what Jesus did, because that's a clue of what he asks us to do. He was, in very nature, God. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, for those of you who like theology, I'm going to give you one minute theology. For those of you who don't, you may now snooze. Okay, I will, I will wake you up when we get to the end. Theologically, what I'm talking about is the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus was very God and very man. But how? How on earth can that happen? And this is something theologians have struggled with from the beginning. But on it actually rests the doctrine of the Trinity, salvation, everything hinges on the incarnation. Jesus is very God and very man. The church councils and the early church fathers argued and argued and tried to get the exact words that they wanted. Because if you just get a word out here or there, suddenly you lose the power of God or you lose the divinity and the, and the humanity of Christ. So they said he was very God without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. His Godhead remained the same. He was the same substance, the same essence, the same homoousius as the Father. And yet, he emptied himself. He self-limited. Canotic theology, he emptied himself of everything except grace. But how? How can divinity and humanity be united? Well, if you like your theology, the answer's in the hypostatic union. So you need to go and look it up on the internet. Now, if you're interested in theology, actually, I, I was mortified sitting there thinking, it's 25 years since I started doing systematic theology at uni. 25 years. No wonder I can't remember it, is it, really? But it's there. It's somewhere. The old word's kind of churning around in there. But if you're interested, go and have a look. Look on the internet and you start understanding. And how, how can this be? How can God and man? So Jesus, in the very nature of God, you can wake up now. Theology's over. If you're not, you can wake up now. He didn't consider equality with God. He wasn't typical. You know, if we were to become servants, it would be bad enough. But he had further to go than us. He was equal with God ultimate in power, had the highest position, and yet he gave up his divine rights. He gave up that to come to earth, and worse than that, to descend further. He didn't try and keep the power he'd got. That's what we naturally do, isn't it? You think of someone like Robert Mugabe. He's clinging to power, absolutely clinging to maintain his power. We strive to cling to power at any cost. Jesus gave it up and put it aside. Philippians 2 may be the most countercultural chapter in the Bible. If you want to be truly great, the direction to go is down. Greatness isn't a measure of self, but of self-abandonment. Descending is everything people think it is. Demotion, anonymity, servanthood, downscaling, decreasing, losing. Try running a campaign ad for that. Do you think you'd get many votes? I suspect we probably wouldn't. Jesus is the prime example. Such an arrival and such a descent seems a totally illogical way 
for God to try and impact the world. I would have set out Obama style. I'd have got my plan. I'd have worked out who I was going to influence, get in with the key people, make sure you influence them. Jesus and God went about it the totally opposite way. He spent his whole life going down, the total opposite. He was the highest. He became the lowest. He created, but he poured himself out. He possessed everything, but he became nothing. And Christ modelled the way we, as his followers, are to go. As he became downwardly mobile and descended, he gave himself for others. And we're asked to do the same. Now, I don't know how many of you remember watching the television programme, Are You Being Served? I actually remember watching that as a kid with my parents. It's good old Mrs. Slocum, Mr. Humphreys. And this is how the theme tune went. I'm not going to sing it, I'll just kind of do it. Ground floor perfumery, stationery and leather goods, wigs and haberdashery, kitchenware and food going up. First floor telephones, gents ready-made suits, shirts, socks, ties, hats, underwear and shoes going up. Second floor carpets, travel goods and bedding, soft furnishings, restaurants and teas going down. First floor telephones, gents suits, shirts, hats, socks, ties, underwear and shoes going down. Does anyone remember? Does that bring memories back to you about, about are you being served? But... The whole premise of the programme was the reorganisation of a department store. And gentlemen's ready-made wear had to move down in order to share share floor space with the ladies' department that went up. And there were problems. People moved up and people moved down and it caused problems. And we're called to serve and to go down. Not to go up, but to go down. So Jesus, if we could have the PowerPoint... He made himself nothing. He didn't consider equality something to hold on to. He didn't hold on to power. He made himself nothing and he emptied himself. Now, nothing is a bit like down. It's not a word that would be top of my list. Because there's not a fat log good about nothing. Nothing is for nobodies. If there's nothing in the cupboard when we get home for lunch, we're going to be hungry. We're used to accomplishing something not nothing. And the really challenging bit is that Jesus made himself nothing. He wasn't pushed or threatened or coerced. It wasn't an accident, circumstance or bad luck. But it was commitment to divine logic and plan. It was step by step, deliberate, choice, knowing, choosing to go down. And we're Asked by God to do the same, to put aside our selfish interests. It doesn't just happen. We have to think about it and decide to pursue it. Because logically, it goes against everything we think. It is the foolishness of the cross. But it is the greatest commandment that God gives us to love him and love others. And that's just the motivation. If you downscale house to free up money to have time for relationships, if you're serving others, if you're volunteering in the soup kitchen, in the food bank, you're starting to think about others rather than yourself. But then again, you have to check your motive. Am I doing this because I want to feel good? Or am I doing it for the sake of God's kingdom? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. It requires humility. It requires intention and obedience. And none of this comes naturally to us. 
It means moving out of our comfort zone. Assessing what I do. Because do I spend, do we all spend most of our lives arranging ourselves so that we can be comfortable? So that we can feel fairly safe? So that we know we're going to be secure when we're retired? We spend our time trying to to build up protection around us so that we feel safe. Is that what Jesus did? Or did he actually take all the barriers down? The irony of this is that spiritual growth, character advances, actually mean pain and difficulty. No pain, no gain, says the athlete. I'm long past that stage, but I can tell you it's no pain, no gain skiing. I can report back. I have nothing broken, but there was lots of pain. There was lots of sliding down on my bottom, down very steep slopes, and much laughter by the members of my family. There was no pain, no gain, no guts, no glory. Life to the full that Jesus promised is found on the downward path of challenge, of actually choices, and of difficult decisions. But he gives us the courage to move down. It isn't just about the external choices we make that people can see by maybe giving some money away or moving house or changing jobs so you've got more time. It's not just about external changes. It's about internally, about what we are, what of ourselves we actually yield to God. We can't measure other people because externally they might look fantastic, but internally they might be doing everything for all the wrong reasons. The measure is primarily internal, but I also accept that with my Western tradition and my Western lifestyle, that's the way I interpret this passage. And I'm not sure I could stand in Africa and say that the same way. They might want a more radical externalism to demonstrate what I was saying. But we need to start somewhere. We need to think about the external, but the internal as well. And Jesus, through the Bible, reveals to us what we're like. He puts up mirrors, doesn't he? So we can see, exposing our pride. Jonathan read some of the passages. Jesus wasn't an easy person to have around. He constantly challenged. And he still does. And he asks us to change. Acknowledging that it's not easy. When we're challenged by the Holy Spirit or others about our honesty, about our selfishness, how do we react? Because these moments are crucial. When the Holy Spirit illuminates something and shows you something, Do you choose to think, well, actually, I'd rather stay just kind of where I am and keep the status quo? Or do I say, okay, Lord, actually, this is really hard, but I'm going to accept that. I'm going to be exposed for who I am. I'm going to be vulnerable because that's what you're asking me to be, to acknowledge how we are. And actually, our comfort zone doesn't always turn out to be that comfortable or reliable, does it? I'm sure lots of people who recently had accumulated wealth in the stock market thought they were very comfortable. And now they've had an almighty shock and found out that actually their comfort was falsely placed and they're not as well off as they thought they were. So we need to put aside ourselves and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be in massive things. It can be in small things to start with that we can all do. It might mean spending more time with your family. It might mean calling, encouraging, supporting a friend or somebody at work. It might mean reconciling a relationship. It might mean asking forgiveness. 
It's about loving others more and ourselves less. And that goes against our nature, against our desires, because we have to inconvenience ourselves and get out of our comfort zone. We have to choose. Jesus made himself nothing. We have to choose to do that. Going down, he then took the nature of a servant. I've wondered if there's anything worse than being nothing. But at least if you're nothing, you're still in control. And you might get to do what you want some of the time. But then he became a servant. Now there are all kinds of people, aren't there? There are loud people. There are quiet people. There are people who are confident and articulate. There are people who are very humble and quite quiet. And I didn't say it in the first service because I would have embarrassed her to death. But I am absolutely in awe of Debbie Reed because I think she's a fantastic person who demonstrates humility and what it is to be someone. She's not loud. She'd, she'd die if she thought I'd said this. She'd die if she had to stand out the front. But there's somebody who gets on with their Christian life, doesn't scream their head off about it, doesn't boast about it, but day after day is just faithfully serving God. And we're all different. And however great anybody is, However loud anybody is, we've all got one thing in common. We put ourselves first if we can possibly do it. Because thinking about me, my interests, that's what most of us tend to think about. Protecting ourselves, protecting our families, protecting what we've got. But it isn't really leading us anywhere. Now if we look at these passages, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Wow, that really, that really speaks to me because that's exactly what I like doing. Let's be honest, you know, if there's something to be done first, yippee, let's go, I'm there. But we have to evaluate and look and say, is that how we should be leading our lives? Me first isn't an attitude that God demonstrated or he wants us to have. And change doesn't come quickly. Self-interest isn't going to disappear overnight. Jesus spent a long time trying to teach his disciples an alternative way of living. And they still didn't grasp it. They wanted him to have earthly power. They couldn't understand when he said he was going to die. They argued over who was the greatest. Who, were the, who was going to sit where. They were with Jesus for a long time and he consistently tried to teach them. But the penny didn't drop. It didn't drop. It's something that we need to work on. But here's the twist. This is the good news. In dying to self, in giving, in serving, we actually end up with what we want most, which is satisfaction and fulfillment and knowing that close relationship with God. Going down. We're going down further. We've gone down a few floors. We're going down some more. Jesus lost equality, he made himself nothing, he became a servant, then he humbled himself. Now, who's heard of the pecking order? Anyone here used to the pecking order? I am reliably told that if you have ten chickens and you stick them in a coop with some food, within five minutes they will know numbers one to ten. They will know number one chicken who is the strongest, who will intimidate number two. Number two will take it from number one but he'll give it out to number three. And number four will accept it for numbers one, two, and three, but he gives it out to five, six, and seven. So heaven help poor chicken number 10, who's the last one in the coop who gets 
A terrible time from everybody and has nobody to kick in return. Now then, I suggest that we all use the pecking order fairly frequently. If you think back to perhaps when you go out or you have a new job or you go to a party and you socialise, one of the first things people want to know is, well, what do you do? Because they're just trying to work out where you are. And if you say, well, I sweep the streets in Warsaw you're probably going to get a very different reaction. And I love playing this game. I do like playing this game. To then saying, actually, I'm a barrister from Birmingham. And you do get people's reactions are very different because they're categorising you, they're pigeonholing you, and they're thinking, right, where does that person come in the pecking order? Has anyone been for a job interview? You sit there and you look at the other candidates. And I actually caught Mark saying this on Friday because one of his colleagues was going for a job interview. And she was on the phone to him just getting some advice. And he says, well, don't worry. Within five minutes, you'll know the pecking order. You'll know what qualifications the others have got. You'll know what experience you've got. And then you'll know how you're going to do. And it's true, isn't it? We have a pecking order. When you go on holiday, where do you come from? Wolverhampton. Where do you come from? Cheam in Surrey. What a different response you get. When you go to university, which school did you go to? I went to Sunderland Comp. I went to, you know, Harrow. People all the time are just measuring you, aren't they? Because we want clues to people's social status. Because how we measure them then determines how we react to them. And we tend to be more careful and polite and considerate to those we consider above us. And those beneath us, well, we're not quite so worried about them. We look for labels and titles and clues to people's status because this helps us put everything in order. James 2 is very clear that that's not the way, as Christians, we should be behaving. Rich and poor men coming into church, and what's our reaction? James says, if you show favouritism, you sin. We naturally do it. If a struggling parent wants help, do you think, well, they should be no better in the first place to have had 55 children? Or do you think, yeah, actually, I might tell them that later down the line, but they also need to be helped and worked with and given time. There's a pregnant teenager on their fourth child. What do you say? You should have learnt the first time. Or do you say, you should have learnt the first time, but you still need help, you still acknowledge that. If you see a refugee or an asylum seeker, what do we think about it? People below us in the pecking order, how do we value them? Jesus was qualified to be absolutely at the top of the pecking order. But he spent his whole life trying to turn it upside down and get to the bottom He was critical of the religious leaders who tried to be at the top. He called them hypocrites, robbers, because they focused on themselves, how they were going to look, where they were going to sit, were their prayers impressive. He he was shaped by the absolute opposite. Jesus deserved his titles, his praise and his position, but he gave it all away. We strive to get it, to keep it. He had it and he gave it all away. He constantly rejected the pecking order. He told people to be great by serving, by visiting those in prison, by caring for the elderly. And he backed up his words with action, by healing, by feeding, by throwing parties for the despised. He focused on chickens 8, 9 and 10. And he challenged the system. He was totally countercultural, and he rebelled against the norm. The shocking thing is, is that he asked us to be just as countercultural and rebellious as he was. Now, I can do rebellious. I like rebellious. I like breaking rules. 
But I'm not so sure I quite like breaking these ones because they don't suit me quite so much. He did nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others better than you. And humility is the undergirding principle. This is where Jesus began his incarnation. We cannot claim special privileges. Now, I don't know if any of you, when you fly with Ryanair, if you pay your extra four pounds for that boarding pass, that is a special privilege and you hang on to it and you stampede and you push everybody out of the way to get your place on the plane. If you don't have a special boarding card, you're right at the back. Jesus wouldn't have held on to his special boarding card. He'd have given it to the woman struggling with a pushchair. I know what I do and it's not give it to the woman struggling with a pushchair. I'm there with me elbows getting on. He didn't claim special privileges. And what impact would it have if we actually applied that in our lives, in our marriages, at work, when we go and give people below us in the pecking order tasks to do? If we do that with humility, and if we do that recognising that they're worth and their value. At the supermarket checkout, there's someone behind you who's stressed, and you know what it's like. You know, they've got six things in, your bas- in their basket, you've got five things in your basket, and someone else has got 25 million in their trolley. Oh, I've got to get to If you let that person go in front, it's quite a big statement. It happened to me. I will relate it to my shame at a garage. I was coming to church one Sunday morning, and I was late, and I had to put petrol in the car. So I was there, filled it up, got to the, got to the you know, kiosk. <sighs> person number one was so slow. What they were, and they wanted a VAT receipt and they wanted 50 fags and I was going mm-hmm. you know and you're getting all tutted I'm looking at my watch then there's a person in front of me and they're really slow as well there's another person in front of me and I was just getting pretty agitated and this lady in front of me said I can see that it's really important to you where you're going you know wh- why don't you go in front of me I'm only going to church it doesn't matter if I'm late ah! <laughs> here was me only going to church trying to get my way to the front so I could get in get out get there on time and here she was, I'm thinking, oh, you know. And she said, bless you. And I could have just like, whoa, cried. Did I learn something? Yes, I probably did, actually. That was quite a powerful punch, that one. But it is about, you know, a simple act like that that she demonstrated on me, to my shame, is actually a really powerful way of, 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 of demonstrating it to somebody that actually, yeah, you are important. You're as important as me. You're more important than me. Here you go, go in front. We have to make it happen. But there's a health warning here. If we try to be like Jesus, we're going to find it really hard. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it does mean death. It means death to self. That's that's the hard bit. Self-interest is alive and well in each and every one of us. And given the right circumstances, we are all quite capable of trampling on other people. And I read some stories about um, some, uh, I think it was American soldiers in the Second World War had gone in to relieve Dachau and the uh, the concentration camps. And they got there and it it was obviously horrendous. And And the Germans in their rush had just stacked up bodies everywhere. And so they'd gone and they'd had to go and sort them and, and remove them and bury them. And then they'd got the group of SS guards who'd done this. And so the Americans were together and the major in charge said, right, okay, who would like to escort these SS guards to the interrogation block? Yep, one of them straight away. Took them, five minutes later, they heard the gunfire. 
came back, gun smoking, he killed them all. And he was pleased with himself. The thing is, would I have done much different? That's the question. Would I have done much different? And one of the soldiers there thought that. He said, would I? He was dreading being asked to be the next guard to take the next lockdown because he knew in his heart of hearts that he would very likely have done the same. And that experience shocked him so much that he could realise that in each one of us there is so much hatred that he actually then became a minister when he left the the army. So there is self-interest. Each one of us can be driven by our fallen natures to do things that we just wouldn't want to think of. Sometimes our words can speak grace, but our actions are the opposite. We might claim to be humble, but really, we just, we want that applause. We pray for abundant life, but then we chase our self-indulgent dreams. But Christ's death and resurrection can overcome the power of evil in us. But we're still vulnerable to its lure. Paul struggled with temptation, didn't he? Romans 7, the good I wish to do, I don't always do. The evil I don't want to do, I end up doing. That, that rings true for me. But freedom comes by yielding ourselves to God and being obedient to him. It's believing in the unseen of the invisible hope. When obedience involves difficulties and personal challenge, do we have the strength of faith to trust God for the outcome? Now, there are times when our faith gets squeezed and it gets strangled, when our marriages can be rocked or broken, when we face real illnesses and death, when we face stress, unemployment, angry children, loneliness, depression, bereavement, and we struggle to make our faith work in our lives. We want to believe that God wants the best for us, and we try, but we're floundering, and it doesn't seem as though God is there. Think about the biblical examples. Jacob connived. Moses was inadequate. Peter was headstrong. David had blood on his hands. God took them, reshaped them and reformed them. And after failures, Jacob became pivotal to God's plan. Moses pulls off the great escape. The church is built on Peter's leadership. And David is called a man after God's heart. But sometimes... When you read the Bible and you read these stories, they can make you feel even worse. Because we play for transformation, but somehow I remain the same. I don't suddenly turn into a Moses. And we can't seem to rise above our daily lives. We want God to transform us. But not a fat lot seems to happen. It's not that we're not sincere, because we are. But sometimes it's a question of process. We pray and then we wait. And maybe that's the problem Because transforming faith doesn't happen while we stand still. It happens while we move, while we do. We have to act to love. We have to act to restore relationships. Jesus healed the lepers after they travelled to the priest in obedience. A relationship can't be restored unless we pick up the phone. Sexual sin doesn't disappear unless we make a conscious decision to remove ourselves from that situation. We need to act On the promise that God can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And then there's a twist. We've gone down, made himself nothing, a servant, humbled himself, became obedient. And this is the twist. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Pursuing earthly dreams ultimately 
doesn't bring satisfaction. Pleasure, security, all the things we try to build around us have got hidden costs to them of stress, of relationship breakdowns, of illness, of taking all our time. We, we, we can get stuck in the mindset of wanting personal comfort at all costs because that's what we see as the most important thing and we'll do almost anything to acquire it. But peace from God comes when we serve, when we love, when we try to live like Jesus, when we're selfless without wanting reward. Therefore, God exalted. It was only after dissent and active involvement in God's will. The paradox is that Jesus' dependence on God actually freed him from the demands of other people. If we become dependent on God and conform to his standards, we're not sucked in to the expectations that people have got. We're not sucked in to having to have X, Y, or Z. Suddenly we're free to be who God wants us to be, to do the things he wants us to do. Romans says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve God's will. We need to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us to will and act according to his purpose. There isn't a simple way to to become humble. There isn't a simple way to not be self-interested, to serve others. We may think, yes, actually, I want to do that, but I'm not sure how I can because it isn't defined by a set of rules. It isn't the same for everybody. It isn't giving away your money or giving away your title, but it is intentional. It is about choice, and it is about transforming our hearts and minds. It's attitude. What's important to me? What gives me my sense of value? What gives you your sense of value? What does that hinge on? Am I reliant on possessions, building up my own comfort zone? Am I reliant on my own abilities? Am I reliant on God? Do I put myself first and my family first or can I serve others? We need to make our decisions based on whether they glorify God, not on social or economic or status factors. Seek to give rather than receive, to put aside our selfish desires and then God will exalt. And what we are doing with our lives, it will last. What are you doing that will last once you've gone? Possessions sure won't. What we sow, what we serve. But we can strive so hard in ourselves to do the good that we want to. Like Paul says, I try to do the good, but it just doesn't work. That we can burn out by striving to be good, to minister, to serve. It needs to be handed to God because it's not in our strength. It is God that works in us to achieve this because we can't do it ourselves. We may still end up being successful externally with credibility and recognition. We may not. But it's our attitude and our heart that matters. And for each one of us, the path is different. It's based on individual guiding of the Holy Spirit. But it's about responding generously with what we have to God's prompting. And we have to constantly check our attitudes and our values so that we don't think of ourselves better than we should. How do you view the things we do? How do we view the things you've got? Are we willing to yield and obey? Are we downwardly mobile from the heart It's about small things, small decisions, obedience. Back to Obama. If you're walking down the right path and you're willing to continue, eventually you'll make progress. If we determine that we're going to walk down the path that God's laid out, 
If we've determined that we will humble ourselves and serve, we might not see results overnight, but eventually, as we continue to work, as we pray, God will transform us. I'll be prepared to lose ourselves so we can gain. I'll be prepared to descend in order to ascend in God's greatness. It is paradox. It's totally countercultural to what most people would say. It's revolutionary. It's the revolutionary Jesus. Not just saying it, but living the life that is so revolutionary. And are we prepared to do it? I'd like the worship team, because I know you're going to come. If you could just sing for us, for you, O Lord, I give everything. And it's there. Make me like you, Lord. May your grace abound in me. May I serve like you. May I become like you. I'd like you guys just to, just to play the music. And while we do, I just want to read the few verses from Philippians again. And take that as a challenge. If you've got anything out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in the community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, do me a favour. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. But forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. I'm just going to ask them to sing this. And while they do, I want you to just think. How can I become more like Jesus? How can I descend? How can I put aside myself? How can I serve somebody else? What are my motives for doing what I do? Think. How are you going to address what God says to you? Pray that God will give you strength. And then you have to choose. You have to choose to serve. You have to choose to descend because it won't just happen. How are you going to do it? Think about a few small things that you can do, that you can demonstrate that you're becoming more like Jesus. Thank you, Steve. ourselves into your hands Lord and I acknowledge how far I am from having the same attitude of Jesus Lord to put aside 
selfish ambition and me first is so against everything that I want to do. But Father, to become great, to become like Jesus, Lord, I just pray that you give us the strength, you give me the strength to really grasp what it means to follow you, to really grasp what it means to become like you and to humble myself. Father, as we, as we move through Lent, I pray, Lord, that you would just challenge each one of us to just do one or two things that we can demonstrate, Lord, that we're wanting to become like you, that we're wanting to serve. And Father, we thank you that then you exult because satisfaction is found in you, not in the things we gather or in our own self-promotion. So Father, I pray that you would change us, that your grace would abound because we can't do it on our own, but that your love would flow out and that we would know the power of your word and the reality of the gospel in our everyday lives as we demonstrate, as we live out the things that you're calling us to do. I ask that in your name. Amen. Guys, if we can just stand and we're going to uh, sing this song together. As you reflect on the words, it's hard hitting, isn't it? When you actually think what we're actually singing. Do we need to take the offering? Have we done that yet?